I welcome you and I warn you, as we're about to do something very strange to us modern Western people. We're about to look at and listen to ancient texts from a foreign culture, an ancient manuscript from a foreign culture. And we do it every week because we believe this is the only way to really know God. Now you may say the skeptic in you, the inner skeptic might rise up and say, come on, Joel, do we really need ancient scriptures to know God? It's a good question. Actually, I know a fellow, see him almost every week, who experiences communion with God out in nature. He calls it his sanctuary. In fact, we just sang a song about when I see the birds and hear you know, all these wonders in the world. This man, he sits out in his deer stand and he calls it his church as he looks out at the forest, as he looks at the skies. He's pretty much actually saying what Psalm 19 began by telling us, right? Actually, I asked you guys to meditate on Psalm 19 this week, to read Psalm 19. We used it to start our service. In fact, if you turn back to page one in your bulletin here, Psalm 19 basically says, look and listen. And it begins by telling us nature can tell us tons about God, the universe. The heavens declare the glories of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pour forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. I think it seems that my friend is right. We can know a lot about God through creation, right? Through this nonverbal communication that's happening all the time. But actually, midway through Psalm 19, look at the next part. It says that's not enough. Verse 7 actually transitions to the second part of the psalm, which talks about ancient manuscripts, the Bible. The law of God is perfect, reviving the soul. Its testimony is sure. Notice it's just moved from creation communication to testament transmission, the Bible. The point of Psalm 19 is that we can know God through his world, world, but you can only know, know God through his invitation, through the Bible. God gave us these, these words as an invitation to personal relationship with him and to new life. What do you mean, Joel? The first thing there, did you see that the perfect law of God does? Was the first thing it does is it revives the soul. That's the very first thing we hear the word does. It revives us. Now, that word revive gives me pause because I work in a hospital pretty regularly. Have you ever been in a hospital and seen the condition of a person who needs to be revived? Rex, Dr. Rex is nodding his head. He's been to a code blue or two, I bet. You realize that this word is resuscitation to a dead soul. It is the defib pads on your life, on your soul. The spirit can bring us to life, new life through the word so that we can have a relationship with God, so that we can know, know him. So yes, my nature loving friend, he gets lots of information about God, but he cannot get that real life, nor can he get real relationship. You see, he can stand there and he can look out and see God is an amazing God, right? Powerful creator. But you know what he can't say? He can't say he knows God as a God who brings me peace, as a God who loves me. Can my friend argue for a God who brings peace, a God who loves by looking out at nature and its tornadoes? 
its tsunamis, its volcanoes. When he looks and sees a hawk swoop down and grab a mouse and rip it to shreds, can he see a God of love or peace? Actually, a hunter knows well that nature says it's all about red tooth and claw, right? Friends, the only way you can know God, the reason we come to an ancient manuscript every single week is it's the only way you can know, know God and have real relationship with him through these ancient words that he gave you as a gift. So let's pray that we will look and listen and find life in his love. And I invite you to turn back to that song we just sang. Let us all pray together the second verse here. Let's pray. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail, let their truth prevail over unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So open up your ancient manuscripts now to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We're going to be reading verse 10 through 21. Now hear the word of our God. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now those Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what these new, this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So we're currently in a sermon series, for those of you just joining us, on worship. Why do we do what we do here? We're actually walking through our bulletin step by step. And it's my hope that by understanding it, you're going to be able to participate in worship in more meaningful ways to experience God's welcome in the call, to find God's unconditional love by total exposure when you confess, and to meet with God personally and really and be transformed by preaching.
That's our focus today, the preaching of God's word. Last week we talked about what preaching was, what it is, how it's the message of salvation, but more we talked about how faithful preaching is nothing less than Jesus himself standing and speaking to you here. I'm to become less so that Jesus can become more. I invite you to listen to the sermon last week. I can't go there on that. But, but faithful preaching is nothing less than you hearing Jesus, your Savior, speak to you in your heart personally, right where you're at. And lastly, we saw that preaching is world flipping. We actually quoted from Acts 17, 6. This is where I'm following up from that. How the preaching of Paul and Silas, the Thessalonians said, you are turning the world upside down. So I ask you, here's your question. So how's your world? How is your world? Last week I asked the question at the congregation meeting, where would you like to see yourself six months from now? What sort of growth? What sort of change? What sort of new freedom would you like to discover or see in yourself six months from now? What false self might you like to see stripped away so that your true self in Christ could be more real and present in this world? Faithful preaching is actually essential to radical change. It's a means of grace that God has given to transform you. So today I'm going to get really, really practical. How can you benefit from preaching? I'm basically going to preach about how you should listen to preaching. And I want to highlight actually how our Westminster Shorter Catechism helps us here. Question 90 says, how is the word to be read and heard so that it may be effective to salvation? And it says, for the word to become effective to salvation, we must pay careful attention to it, prepare ourselves, and pray for understanding. We also are to receive it in faith and love, treasure it in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. Notice how careful attention is right there at the start. Do I have your attention? That's what we're going to do today. We're going to find out how we can pay attention and take in the sermon. We're going to focus at what we should be looking at and what we shouldn't be looking at. So we're going to come to better know God through preaching, also come to know ourselves, and then also see how we can be transformed. So I have three points. Eyes on scripture, eyes off preacher, eyes on heart. Eyes on scripture, eyes off preacher, eyes on heart. And we referenced the Acts 17 backstory last week. Remember, Paul went to Thessalonica, and we're continuing in Acts 17, where Paul goes and preaches first. We see in Berea, we read about, and then in Athens. And I left out his sermon. I, that's your homework. You can read his sermon afterwards. It's brilliant, but I'd get off on rabbit trails if I started there. And it's fitting to stay in Acts, because we find Jesus' disciples. How did they transform the world? Twelve guys, uneducated fellows, through preaching. They saw Jesus preaching and now they're taking his message and his what he did and his resurrection this re message of the resurrection they're taking it everywhere acts is actually the account of how the church got started and how it grew through preaching do you know that 25 percent of the book of acts is sermons one in every four words it's how god grew the church and how he flipped people's lives upside down flipped them right side up transformed the world so how can Heart City grow, and how can you be transformed through preaching? Well, let's see. Our first point is eyes on Scripture. That's what we see in the Bereans, right? Who are introduced to Paul's preaching, and they are in the Word of God already. 
Paul flees Thessalonica. He heads to Berea. This is actually in the foothills of the Olympic mountains and all. And he goes, as was his custom, to the synagogue. Why? So he can preach. What an amazing thing he discovered. They were all in. I mean, this is a preacher's dream. I mean, you walk into a place like Berea. They hear they're noble, they're eager to hear, and they're already all into the word of God. Every time Paul said, read an ancient manuscript, says, God is so good, they're like, amen, brother Paul, preach it. Every time he said, praise God, they said, amen. Amen? Amen. All right, you get me excited here now. This is great. All right. Luke says that these guys, first, they're more noble than the Thessalonians. And that's actually not a great translation. The word, some translated open-minded. The word literally means well-born or better-born. What does that mean? What's Luke trying to say? Well, I suggest that I think he's saying that God was already at work in these Bereans. They were not better-born because they're of a better class. No, they're better-born because they had been born again. And the Bereans... Paul walks in, he finds they're already spirit-filled, born-again believers. And you know what you know it's true about believers? They already have their eyes on the scriptures. That is one of the first qualities of being born again. You love God's word. You love God's word. Psalm 19.10 actually goes on to say that the, to the believer, God's laws are more precious than gold. More pure, much than pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, honey from the honeycomb. Do you look at your Bible that way? These Bereans loved God's word, and they received Paul's preaching with eagerness. That word eagerness. They weren't sermon tasters. They were sermon feasters. They're all in. They're leaning into Paul's preaching. So, Joel, how can I cultivate eagerness? Well, part of that is preparation and prayer. How do I prepare to be hungry? That's the question, really, right? Well, I would invite you to consider the opposite. What could I do to not be hungry when I come to church? Well... I could stay up last night, past midnight, eating Cheetos, watching movies, and playing video games. And then when I roll out of bed Sunday morning, the first thing I do is play with my phone for 30 minutes. Then I go to the fridge, I eat a box of donuts, wash it down with half a gallon of milk, okay? And then when I get here and the service starts, I'm sucking candy, all right? And I'm also checking to see what games are on this afternoon, okay? That's how I can not be hungry. If I'm filling myself with all the stuff of this world and not desiring God in a greater reality, I'm probably not going to be very eager to take in the sermon if that's my condition, right, when I come in. That's where discipline. You want to be a disciple? It requires discipline. Preparation and prayer. I've, it's me having the attitude, I want to see what God has for me. I believe he has something for me on Sunday morning. Whatever you have, God. In fact, I'm going to pray for Pastor Joel's mouth, pray for the preacher's mouth, and I'm going to pray for awakened ears so I can hear his voice. And I'm going to get everything ready the night before, so in the morning, I'm not running and scurrying everywhere. I'm eager. The most important thing is here on Sunday morning, because God has something better for me on Sunday morning than anything I could stuff myself with in this world. That's what it means to be eager. And second thing, the Bereans, they listened to Paul read the ancient scriptures, and Paul saying it's all about Jesus, pointing to him. And look what they did in verse 11. They were examining the scriptures daily, to see if these things were so. Notice again, eyes on scripture. When you're listening to a sermon, when you're listening to me, you need to have your eyes on scripture. Ideally, you're actually gonna read ahead of time what I was going to be preached. I send that out every Thursday night or Friday morning. 
Let me just be real with you. Friends, I know many of you trust me, and I don't take that lightly. But don't trust your soul care solely to me. Your soul is so precious. It's eternal. It's a gift from God. So be in your own Bibles every day, getting familiar with God's Word. So when you hear the preaching, you know whether I'm telling you the truth or not. And you should be keeping your eyes on the Scripture during the sermon as well. Is your faithful being, is your pastor being faithful to what you're hearing, reading in the Word of God? Is it match? Look and listen. Be like a born-again Berean. You won't hurt my feelings. Well, maybe you will, but don't care about that. If I make a mistake and you bring it to my attention, because I need help too, and I want to speak the truth. I don't want to lead people astray. And that leads to our second point. Eyes off the preacher. Eyes off the preacher. In the first place, the preacher is to become less so Jesus can become more. But in the second place, let's just be real. Maybe your first time here, maybe you're watching online. Your first thing you start to do is evaluate the guy who just steps in the pulpit, right? Do I like this guy? Why has he got a collar on for? Is he smart? Is he funny? Does he like cats? Or is he more godly and likes dogs? <laughs> There's all kinds of judgments we can make, right? About the guy who steps into the pulpit. But what happens when you focus too much on the preacher? You end up either too critical or you make too much of him. Both are mistakes, which we see the Athenians do. Paul, after he leaves Berea, he heads to Athens and he begins preaching every day. In verse 18, notice the audience is evaluating Paul. What does this babbler wish to say? <laughs> now, we might actually think the Apostle Paul was an incredible preacher, but the opposite was true. He admitted he was rightly criticized for not being very eloquent when he preached, 1 Corinthians 2. <clears throat> so many were actually missing out on the most important message they could ever hear because they're evaluating him. They didn't think much of him as a preacher. And others can make too much of the preacher, even the preacher himself. <laughs> I remember when I was in seminary, every one of my classmates and myself, while we never ever said it, we all thought we were going to be the next Billy Graham or Tim Keller or R.C. Sproul. All of us. We couldn't wait for preaching class so that we could prove it. That was our number one class. We were just thinking, oh, how blessed the world is going to be when they finally unleash us. Folks are just going to flock to hear us preach. Oh, how wrong I was. Not only did they not flock, but actually I found out some people didn't appreciate me. Not long after I was ordained, I had someone who came up and said they had a problem with my preaching. They told me I came across angry. And you know what my first thought was? <laughs> Essentially this, don't listen to this babbler. <laughs> Look at the source. And this guy had a lot of issues, a lot of issues. One of them obviously being he didn't know what a great preacher I was, you know, so yeah. And we're doing a sermon series right now on worship. And I've actually preached on this topic for several years. So you know what I did? I decided to go glean from some of my old sermons. <laughs> I knew it was going to be traumatizing because there's nothing worse in the world than being a preacher and listening to like your old sermons. But it was even worse. You know what I heard? Angry preaching. I was scolding too much, correcting too much acting like I had all this knowledge that just needed to be these people. You just get this. My tone was exactly what this babbler said to me. But I couldn't accept it back then because I made too much of the preacher. There's a story in the Bible about a disobedient prophet named Balaam. You can read in Numbers 22. 
and he's riding a donkey and there's an angel up there with a sword because God is ticked off at Balaam and he's going he's gonna to do Balaam in. And the donkey, he can see the angel. So the donkey turns off the road into the field. Balaam doesn't see the angel. And he gets all mad and starts striking his donkey. What are you doing? Three times the donkey veers off. Each time Balaam starts striking the donkey. What are you doing? Because he can't see the angel. Finally, to his surprise, the donkey turns around and starts talking to him. <laughs> it says, why are you angry at me? I'm trying to help you out here. And then Balaam sees the angel and how he nearly died. You know what the lesson of that story is? If God can even use Eeyore to help you out, okay, and maybe even save your life, you better take your eyes off the speaker and pay attention to the message. Because every preacher is going to be a donkey or fill in the blank here sometimes, right? So let's take our eyes off the preacher and look and listen to see if the message he's preaching is true. Eyes off the preacher, eyes on scripture, see if the message aligns with the word. And with that, let's look at our scripture of the month because we need to get God's word in us and we need to hear what it can do. Hebrews 4.12, we're memorizing this for this month. Let's all see what the word of God can do. Let's recite together. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. <laughs> the word of God can reveal <laughs> the thoughts and intentions of your heart. That's our last point. This is big, actually. Eyes on your heart during the preaching. Eyes on your heart. During the sermon, you have to keep your eyes on your own heart. And I'll take the bullseye here, too, because this goes for the preacher as well. The preacher must have eyes on his own heart before he preaches. And when he preaches, why is he preaching? What are his motives insofar as he knows himself? Are they good and right and true? The preacher needs to preach from a right heart, and we, like Paul does in Athens. Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he's not planning on going to preaching tour here, by the way. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul sees a city full of idols and his spirit is provoked. NIV translates it greatly distressed. Why? Paul's heart is hurting because he sees all these people who are enslaved to what is not God. Read Galatians 4, 8 to 10. Write that down where you will see Paul sees idolatry as slavery. And it hurts his heart to see all these folks around him in chains. That's what provokes his preaching. And Paul actually does his own Psalm 19 in Romans 1. All of us can look at nature, everybody, and know there's a God. But instead of turning to God in gratitude, we are ever prone to let our hearts grow dark and exchange God's glory for idols, created things. This is Genesis 1 to 3. I tell you this almost every single week because you have to understand the first three chapters of the Bible if you understand any of it. What happened to us? Why are we in the mess we're in? Why are there wars and sickness and all the problems you see, families breaking down? Why is all this happening? The Bible opens by saying God created the world with three tiers, okay? With God at the top, us made in his image, pinnacle of creation in the middle, and everything else, all the created order at the bottom. 
And we were to love and glorify God and appreciate him all the more as we noticed all the good gifts that he gave us. But eyes focused on loving God. That was the perfect order was to be maintained. Our thoughts fixed on God above and all the more so as we enjoy, wow, what a wonderful gifts God gave me. But the first humans, Adam and Eve, flipped the world upside down. When they listened to the serpent, they put created things above loving God. And ever since our world has been upside down, that's what they've done. Like Eustace, we find ourselves craving Turkish delight, right? And yet it never satisfies us. We can never get enough of it. Look at the drug addicts, the sex fiends. Look at that. Like Gollum, we find our hearts ensnared by our preciouses. We've got to have it. And what does it do to us over time? It's ever alienated us more from God and also with relationship with others as we put our trust and our hope in these things. <coughs> Friends, idolatry is not just an ancient people problem. It is actually the biggest problem of moderns. Preachers must preach from the heart, hearts that hurt like heaven, to folks, to the hearts of hearers. We must preach from our hearts to the hearts of hearers who are often heading to hell. That's where our hearts have to be. And what can flip people right side up? Really simple. Jesus and the resurrection. I love that. It's not the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is sharing the simple gospel. Jesus. Jesus, who came into our world in our flesh, the Son of God, who came and he loved you so much. He offered up his own life. He lived the life you didn't live so that you could be right before God and died the death you deserved to die and was raised so that you could have resurrection life in a new creation. That's what the heart of preaching is all about. Jesus full of grace and truth. And the heart of the hearers, need to, you need to be listening for both. What's the truth? Well, look at the word. Look at your heart. What are your idols? Calvin rightly said that our hearts are idol factories. We're constantly pumping out idols. It starts with, oh, these things delight me. Then they turn to deities. And then they become demons that control us. You have idols that have functional ownership of your heart. And you need to be set free of them. And they're likely good things that have become God things. Like Athens Market, they're also promoted today, right? In social media, the movies, all the songs. So what are your idols? Is it a relationship? Maybe sports? Cars? Career? Your achievements? Your pets? What do you think about most? What do you talk about most? What brings joy to your heart? Your abilities? Food? Sex, drinks, drugs, television, books. An idol is anything that you give pretty much effortlessly your time to, your attention to, your money to, your affection to. And you depend upon that. If you can't have it, you lose your security. You lose your happiness. You lose your reason for being. Look at your heart. What do you love more than God? Put back to our confession, Rex read earlier. Our confession here. This is actually the start of the Ten Commandments. The first two commandments are God saying this. It starts off with, have no gods before me, and then it goes on to make no idols, or I will punish you. After this, and I don't have it in the bulletin, there's eight more commandments. Honor your parents. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. All those, right? 
Now, here's the thing. Anytime you break any of those other eight, anytime you sin, look for the idol. Look for the idol. Your love for an idol is the reason you break the other eight. You only break the other eight because you broke the first two. That is the truth there that Paul and every faithful preacher must seek to show. When you lie, when you sleep around, when you steal, when you covet, the reason that you sinned is because you gave your heart away to something other than God. And that's a really helpful thing. When you can see the why of what you've done. Preaching is not just a man stepping up here and saying, stop sinning, stop sinning, blah, 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 you're sinners. No, because then you're left to your own willpower, right? Try and stop it. How's that going to work? Preaching shows the love of God that breaks the power of your idols so that you can demote them, unseat them from the throne of your heart. Let's move a little deeper. How do, your, how do our idols wreck us? Maybe you're struggling with bitterness over something that happened to you. Maybe over guilt over something you failed at. Maybe you can't forgive yourself. Why is that? God says, I forgive you. You heard Rex say it from the pulpit. Why is it that you can't forgive yourself? Why do you harbor those thoughts, feelings, that condemnation? Because you've made an idol's judgment greater than God's judgment of you. It's not because of what happened to you or what you did. It's never that. If you can't get past the slight, betrayal, the career you lost, the hurt you caused, it's because your heart made a good thing into an ultimate thing, an idol that's greater than God in your eyes. And when you can come to the place where you can admit that, you can look to God for the grace to free you of those idols' chains. And remember how the Ten Commandments begins? He is the God who sets us free from the house of slavery. That there is the grace. And it even goes further because you hear it in that command. Did you hear? I am a jealous God. That's grace, friends. How does that hit your heart when you hear God say, I am jealous? hope you don't hear it the wrong way because we tend to hear that word you know we think jealousy is you know selfish it's demanding it's controlling right not God God's jealousy is the best thing in the world it's good jealousy you can thank God for his jealousy because he doesn't leave you where you are and let you be he didn't just create us wind up the world and let us go he is jealous for us God saw you in your mess saw you in your sin with your heart going after other things. And what happened? He brought you here this morning to hear about how much he loves you. And he chose to pursue your heart, your heart in the preaching of the gospel. God does. He sees your heart. He's been watching all week, watching your heart run off after all these other things that are not necessarily bad things, but they're good things you made into God things. And God, is you know what he's saying to you right now? Don't give your heart to that. I want you in my arms. Jealous. And we see it especially at the cross. I know we're afraid. We're afraid that God doesn't really want us in his arms. That's why we have to go to the cross, because that's where God's jealous love is made most manifest. We see at the cross the truth. Yes, God is holy, just, pure, and must punish sin and idolatry. And we see at the cross God's grace. God is jealous, loving, and wants peace with us. And that's why he poured out this punishment on his own son so he didn't have to on us. How does that strike your heart? Gets me excited even standing here. Why would we want to give our hearts to anything or anybody else other than God? 
So the question now for you is, will you treasure the cross of Christ, God's gift in his son, and let that transform you? Our catechism ended with treasuring the message, treasuring your heart, and then practicing it. The message of God's love in Jesus is worth treasuring. I don't have to know you well to know that your greatest need is to believe in the unconditional love of God the Father in your Son, the God who, in whom you live and move and have your being. And the preacher is tasked with delivering that message. You need to be listening for that message and allowing it to hit your heart. Just Valentine's Day last week. Well, preaching is like receiving a Valentine's Day card from someone maybe that you sometimes wonder if they really like you or not. <laughs> and then you open it up, you get it, and you discover they have feelings for you. You are cherished. They care about you. And your heart starts thumping, your hands get sweaty, and start sweating on the card, you know. What's happening in that moment? You're treasuring the most amazing truth. It's more than facts. It's more than feelings. It's about relationship. And your whole life changes at that moment. Everything you want to go and do, right, when you know you're that loved. Preaching is Father God, inviting you into relationship with this promise. Nothing in the world can ever separate you from my love. Neither life nor death, nothing else in all the creation can separate you from me. My love for you in Jesus Christ. Preaching is God's Valentine's Day card saying, I want you to have the strength to comprehend what is the breadth, the depth, the length, the height, of my love for you that surpasses your knowledge. I want you to be filled with all the fullness of my love. Now, if you truly take that in, if you take that in and you appropriate that to the core of your being, from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, no matter how messy your life is, how bad your mistake, that God accepts you just as you are and he won't leave you where you are, then you're gonna be changed as you walk out of here with a relationship with him. And I know we need to land the plane, but now we're kind of left with the what now, Joel? What now? Charles Spurgeon told the story about once after he'd finished preaching, he heard some Scottish woman stand up and say, well, the sermon has been said, but it is not yet done. So it's now up to you to take this sermon and live it by loving the God who first loved you up to me as well and say thank you God for loving me now I want to go out there and live loving you back so the final word this is what I'm landing the plane with is fidelity fidelity keeping your eyes on your heart and keeping your eyes on God's word a word I felt John 15 9 Jesus said that night before he was betrayed as the father has loved me so I have loved you now remain in my love. That's fidelity. Remaining in that love. This morning I recalled that last scene. I was trying to scramble to write my sermon, so I don't know where it's going to go from here. But <laughs> that movie, The Notebook. Yeah, it's Valentine's Day. You guys probably have seen that. And you know that last scene. You know you're, it takes every ounce of face steel to try and keep yourself from turning into a puddle. You know it. Duke has the heart attack, you know, actually he keeps showing up in the nursing home reading this notebook to this woman who doesn't realize this is his husband because she's got dementia alley, right? And he ends up having a heart attack. He sneaks into the dementia ward because they put her there. <laughs> and he goes there, sneaks into her bed, 
They've been married for years. She doesn't remember. He holds her hand. They hold hands, and then they, they die in love. <laughs> A couple of plump old elderly people. Why does that touch my heart so much? Well, you see the backstory when he's reading the notebook when they're first in love, and you've probably had that happen if you're a believer. You're first in love with Jesus and the passion, you know, Ryan Gosling, and just, there's just, it's amazing. He comes back from the war and pursues her. But you do miss out the whole middle of their life. Because you know you're only passionate love for so long, right? That's all the fidelity, just walking with someone, remaining in their love all that time. And we so admire that because we want to be that at the end of our days. We want to have done a love that matters, even through the tough stuff. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, don't let love sustain marriage to a couple getting married. He said, let your marriage sustain your love. That's where I want us to go from here. You're going to leave here, and you're going to feel the pull of the idols. But you have the opportunity to say, I've been baptized, I belong to you, Jesus, and I'm going to seek to be my fidelity to you, remaining in your love, trusting in you. And when you do that, you know what you're doing? You're opening more and more of the relationship. You're coming to discover him. You may not feel it at the time, but as you begin to look back, you're discovering, wow, what is happening here? You know what happens with older folks. You put the pictures beside them side by side. They've been together 60 years. They start to look like each other, right? That's what happens in your relationship with Jesus Christ. When you first commit to Jesus and when you decide, I'm going to remain, remain in your love, Jesus, you're going to be transformed more and more, and you're going to look like Jesus Christ at the end. And that's the way all of us want to live our lives. I know it. We want to do something mattering. It's going to come by remaining fidelity to Jesus Christ. So hearing this word today, recognizing these idols that pull on you and saying, you know what? I'm going to seek to remain in your love more and more each and every day. May that, by God's grace, may that transform us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your ancient words that still speak to modern souls and reveal your great love for us in Jesus. We want to be able to remain faithful to you, but we need your Holy Spirit, and we need your word to continue to work its way into our hearts. So I pray that you will help us to treasure whatever it is that you wanted us to walk out of here today with, and then help us to practice it in our lives by keeping our eyes fixed on our Lord Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, that we might be in glory with him. We ask and pray, leave none of us here untransformed, but make us do radical changes in our lives to the praise of your grace, and so that we may better know your love. Know your love and, and just to live that out all of our days before a watching world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.